Welcome to Inside Angle. This is Gordon Moore, Senior Medical Director for 3M Health Information Systems. Today, I'm going to be talking with Mark Sonneborn. He is the Vice President for Health Information and Analytics for the Minnesota Hospital Association. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on today. Tell me a little bit about what is the Minnesota Hospital Association? What does it do? And then what's your role within it? Sure. Every state has a hospital association, including Minnesota. We have 142 member hospitals that pay dues to be part of us. What we're mostly known for is advocacy. So we work in St. Paul down at the Capitol. But in addition to that, we also provide some operational help for all the hospitals, including data, which is my role. Uh, We do collect all of the bills that go out of the hospital and put it into a database and have been doing that for about 30 years. So there's about 550,000 discharges per year in Minnesota and also around 6 million outpatient visits that we put into a database. And hospitals then take that database and use it for various purposes, including market share analysis, strategic planning, financial analysis, and quality improvement work. That's just one of the databases we do. We also do databases for workforce personnel, staffing at the unit level, and salary surveys, those types of things, including also community benefit reporting that hospitals can use in their reporting that they have to do to the IRS. So my role is really to help with all of the things that are data. I also represent the hospitals in various uh, settings as the hospital representative on e-health, on things uh, actually on workforce as well, but also for public reporting of performance measurement. I am usually the hospital representative that sits at the table with other stakeholders. And, you know, that's actually where I've run into you. And we've had conversations in the past as I heard you talk about what your members are doing and the kind of work that's been happening in Minnesota. And first of all, there's just an immense amount of really interesting quality work that's happening with hospitals across Minnesota. But there's also, in conversations you and I have had, some thought and work around value-based care and what that means to your members. And so I'd like to take the conversation in that direction and share some thoughts on what are your members facing with value-based care? First of all, why do you think that's coming and what's behind it? And then what are they facing and how are they dealing with it? Sure. And so what I failed to say also is that though we have hospital in our title, um, we are more than hospitals. We are hospitals and healthcare systems. And more and more, we are more healthcare systems than we are hospitals. The hospitals are a part of that, but maybe not even the driver of what's moving healthcare in our communities. And so therefore, a value-based payment versus the volume-based that we've had in the past, where the more work you do, the more you get paid, has led us to this point where healthcare is being questioned for how affordable it is, and and we need to do work to make it more affordable. The value-based arrangement is something that has the potential to align the incentives to do the right things, the right amount of things, rather than just being paid for each service. You've heard of the triple aim, which is to reduce cost of care overall, improve the health of the population, improve the experience that patients have when they access the system. Well, in a value-based payment arrangement, hopefully we can align our incentives to go towards a triple aim. In Minnesota, in particular, the Medicaid program is a good example of the types of payers that are trying to move towards value-based payment. We have what's called in this state the Integrated Healthcare Partnerships. 
which is like an accountable care organization that is uh, gives the financial risk to the provider community to take care of the Medicaid population. This has been in effect for, I would say, three to five years now and has saved the state quite a bit of money. So they are actually trying to do a next generation integrated healthcare partnerships, which I'll call IHPs from now on to save time. But they have actually run into some opposition from the legacy health plans who are feeling a loss of control over the premium dollar as more and more risk moves towards the provider community. So where we are today is sort of trying to move forward and and the provider community would very much who has already participated in the IHP program would like to keep going and keep taking a little bit more risk as we go on. That's an interesting thing because when I think about the typical framework for reducing costs in healthcare through quality improvement, if we do a terrific job, we're reducing the number of people going to hospitals. And I know that your members are more and more health systems, but how do they deal with the empty bed, no revenue thing where shared savings is really just a proportion of loss? So the empty bed in a value-based world is actually a positive. So if you think about in the volume world, you have a full bed equals more revenue. In a value-based or capitated type of payment arrangement, you are given a set of money. And therefore, if you admit a patient or readmit a patient or they come for an unexpected visit, that's taking away from your pot of money. So your incentive is to ideally keep them out of the healthcare system altogether, but treat them in the most cost-effective setting. So a readmission is a cost, not additional revenue. You've sort of alluded to a tricky part of this, is that we're still a lot in a volume-based world. So how do you participate in a world that has both volume-based and value-based types of payment? And that is an art, because it is diametrically opposed. One on admission is a revenue, and the other, it's a cost. So it makes dealing with that hard. It would be very good if we could move all to one system or all to the other, but that's not the reality at the moment. Not not everybody has moved to value-based. So it is difficult if you put your finger on one of the biggest challenges we face. So how, if you think about, you know, sort of your typical MHA member health system, Give me an example of how they're managing that complex problem. A lot of work has been done to organize with population health in mind. And by I mean population health is you segment your different patients into those who need a lot of services, those that need some and those that don't need any. And you have different strategies to deal with each of those populations. Where the real opportunity is sometimes is with those high utilization patients. There may be someone who's coming in to the emergency room, let's say 25 times a year, which is basically every other week. If you can get them down to, and and the emergency room is the most expensive setting that there is. If you can get them to start coming to the clinic, maybe even arrange for some sort of ride-sharing program like Uber or Lyft to come get them, to bring them to their appointment so that they're not coming into the emergency department. That's the kind of thing where you can actually save quite a bit of money on the high end of things. There's frankly not as much savings for those that are not utilizing the system, but you want to keep them in that category of keeping them healthy. So there's a different strategy for dealing with those. Care coordination has become very big for those in the high utilization. And so you have nurses and others whose job it is now to work with individuals about 
Are they taking their medicines correctly? Are they getting to their appointments on time? Even to the point of, do we need to find some social services for them? Do they have housing? That kind of thing. Do they have a regular source of food? Those types of things affect how they access and how often they access the healthcare system. So it, it is a new way of organizing care, and it is different than we have done before. So one of the things that I'm hearing in your description is a need to identify patient types by certain features or variables. How is it that your members are getting into that kind of work? Is that something that's easy for them? I would say it is mediumly difficult. <laughs> if that's a mediumly is maybe not an adjective, but the the data is very important. And the data that we have here at MHA is not sufficient because all we have is the hospital-based portion of things. The health plans and Medicaid have data for all settings. And that's really important for these IHPs to be able to access and be able to do the segmentation of their populations. Ideally, we would be able to do that even quicker than claims through the electronic health record and sharing of information through health information exchange. That's another sort of pain point here in Minnesota is that it's easy to tell when a patient is going from setting to setting within your system, but if they access some services that are outside your system, you won't know about that until the claim comes through. And so that's a real challenge. And we have to figure out a way that the information can flow more real time in order to make a difference in managing those patients' health care. You know, you mentioned health information exchange. Isn't that the conceptual model for solving that problem? Yeah, it is. And I think there's both the real time is really more important for the actual care coordination. That's where real time comes into play. The retrospective, the claims data can be very helpful in doing retrospective studies and looking sort of at a big data types of solution, what we call predictive analytics, find out what things make a difference in the outcomes for patients, and also what sort of things reduce utilization. They're both very important. It's not one is more important than other. I would say health information exchange is very important for care coordination that cannot be done by claims data. So each type of data has its purpose, but they're both necessary. You know, one thing I remember in prior conversations, you talked about the Minnesota RARE program, and I'm wondering if you could just very briefly describe what is the RARE program and then what data did your members use to get such great improvements? So RARE stands for Reducing Avoidable Readmissions Effectively. We used hospital-only data there that we were able to provide reports back to hospitals that showed each quarter for their patients their actual versus expected readmissions that they had. And then if they were above one on that, that means that they had more readmissions than were expected. And if they're below one, they had less readmissions than were expected. But the data itself is just a scorecard. It tells them how their interventions have made a difference. So we had five different collaboratives going on, different segments of the care pathways. So one of the pathways, for example, was the uh, care transitions. So we had a group of hospitals working together on finding solutions for making care transitions better, making sure patients got to the primary care provider within five days after they were discharged. And so processes were put in place. People were were set to work on doing this. And then every quarter, they would get their scorecard to see how they did last quarter on uh, the improvements that they've made. And overall, we were able to get down close to 20% reduction over a couple of years 
Now, I will say since the Rare campaign, and that ended, I believe, in 2013 or 14, since then, we've leveled off. We've maintained the gains, but I think that we've picked the low-hanging fruit and we need something more to disrupt the patterns that we see now. But we're happy that we've been able to maintain the game, that we haven't slipped. But the gains that we had during the campaign, we haven't seen that continue to fall. It's leveled off. Out of curiosity, how do you know you're maintaining Uh, We still run the data. We've continued to run the data every quarter. We still feed that back to all the hospitals. We actually are participating in a federal grant where, where they're looking at readmissions. So we have some people here who are able to help hospitals put their quality improvement interventions into place as we go. But uh, at this point, we're not seeing the kinds of gains that we had before. Yeah, sometimes maintaining can still be a good thing. I remember looking at some studies of big quality improvement projects that when the focus shifts, the outcomes tend to trend back to the baseline. So it sounds like you did not experience that. So that that's a win. You know, getting better, of course, you, or maybe you're topping out in terms of how far you can go. A couple of other questions about the readmission bit. You're talking about facility-based data, and I wonder how did you capture or did you try to capture when somebody was readmitted to some other facility? Unfortunately, our data, due to some privacy laws here in Minnesota, we cannot track from one hospital to the next. So what we're actually getting is readmission to the same facility. We know from Medicare data that there's about 22% of readmissions that go to a different facility. So we have about a 22% chunk in our data that's missing. So what I usually say there is that it's like having a scale that we know is 20 pounds off, but we can tell whether or not we're losing weight because we measure from one period to the next, (laughs) Uh, right? Uh, But we don't know the actual number. That's great. And another thing, you mentioned the getting them in within five days. I know in some readmission care transition work that it can sometimes be a struggle finding the appointments in a timely manner. Was that an issue? And did that put any pressure on the within five days? I'm not as familiar with what exactly our hospitals and health systems have done to try to streamline that. What I've heard anecdotally is that they make the appointments while they're still an inpatient. So they know when their appointment is before they leave the hospital. Now, again, that's if you have the clinic and the physician sort of within your system. Those hospitals who are not in that situation that aren't as integrated are challenged with that. I think they still try to make that appointment, but it's harder for them to know whether they followed through. So even with a limited data set, because you're able to understand that there is a consistency in the what you don't know, I like that you know what weight you are and how much weight you're losing. So that's a nice approach. I remember reading an article by Carlos Jackson and others from work done in North Carolina Medicaid, where they used a total illness burden segmentation model and published on this. And what I found fascinating out of that was they were able to show that certain very high illness burden folks needed to be seen within seven days or else, uh-oh, they're going to bounce back to the hospital. But there were lower illness burden people coming out of the hospital where it was okay if it was 14 days or even 21 days. And they knew that up front so that they had different pressure in terms of how urgently they had to get them back in for revisit after discharge. I'll post a link to that article on the podcast page, but that was just some elegant work. I want to pivot back to sort of the bigger picture of value-based care in your members and your health systems. And are there, are they, I'm trying to get at how comfortable are they with this? And I know the answer is that it's difficult in some ways, but what would you call out as being like the big challenges and the big things that your members are facing? 
Right. And really, we have a continuum of readiness and action. I would say, you know, there are health systems that have bought into this and are doing a lot of work to try to move to value-based and that there are some that are watching and waiting and then some that are sort of actively milking the volume-based care world as long as they can. But those who have tried to get into the value-based, I would say number one thing that's a challenge is knowing who's your patient. The way the IHPs work is you don't know if someone's your patient or not until afterwards, meaning retrospectively. You, you sort of have an idea if they show up at your shop that they could be your patient. So you, you treat them as if they are your patient, but you don't know that ahead of time. It would be wonderful if we had patients sign up for your IHP or ACO. And that way we know for sure which patients we have. Right now it is a guess and it would be nice to know that for sure. Is that a unique issue because of the privacy laws at the individual level in Minnesota or is that something else? No, I think that actually is in the Medicare program as well. Yeah. Uh, There is, I think there's an advantage to administering the program, and and there may be an advantage to the payer themselves to retrospectively assign patients to a system. But for the system, it's it would be far better if they knew prospectively. Well, it kind of shoots the opportunity in the foot of effective population health management. I mean, that's supposed to be a prospective intervention. I know I'm working for you. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to bring resources to bear. If I don't know who you are, it kind of blows it up. So, you know, I'd probably get in trouble in some level for saying this, but that retrospective attribution thing sounds kind of silly. That's just between you and me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I wouldn't make that statement, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> so then when, when you think about your different members and how well they're doing, are there certain attributes of your members or actions they're taking that predict success in value-based world? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say the the mindset to want to change to value-based care is primarily the um, leap of faith that needs to happen. There is this problem of being in a volume-based world. If you go too much to the value-based, you are hitting your revenue in the volume world. And so there's a certain tipping point that it becomes better to be mostly volume-based. And I don't know what that tipping point is, but there's definitely financial risk to an organization that is based on volume-based payment to go too much into the value-based world too soon. So that's sort of an art. And I would say those that are interested in contracting on a value basis, the more of their business that they get in there, the better that they're going to be able to implement full-on a value-based type of approach operationally. You know, as I think about the move to value, in some sense, there's a lot of variability coming out of the federal government right now. And that variability could mean that their pressure to move to value-based stuff is diminished because CMS may be going in a different direction. We don't know. And so I could imagine some of your members are saying, well, the heat's off. I can stick with the volume and that's good enough. It's working. It's not perfect, but all the complexity of learning how to do this value-based stuff is just too expensive and don't want to go there. But at the same time, as I sense that that is true about the sort of the chaos coming out of DC, I'm also reading that the cost pressures are getting worse and worse. And I see that manifesting in lots of different ways. And for instance, you know, I see some 
interesting entrants into the healthcare world like Amazon and Berkshire Hathaway and others who are saying, we're fed up. We're going to do something that's radically different. The heck with all you guys. We'll take it our own way. I also see that the pressures to manage differently and get better quality are forcing additional administrative work on health systems that trickles immediately down to the front lines with clinicians spending more and more time clicking boxes and documenting stuff. And I believe that that's one of the big drivers for dissatisfaction on healthcare providers, which also leads then to doctor burnout and nurse burnout and, you know, across the board burnout. And I remember hearing from prior podcast interview, Christine Sensky from the AMA was saying that it can cost a hospital up to $500,000 to recruit a new doctor. And so as I think about these pressures, I don't see them going away. I actually think they're getting worse. So whatever's happening at a DC, it still begs the question, how are we going to solve this cost problem? Is that kind of apparent to your members? Are they seeing the same sort of things? Or is that very discordant from what's happening in Minnesota? No, that sounds in line. The piece that I would add, in addition to the federal government, you mentioned disruptors like Amazon and Google, is you have partnering between delivery systems and insurers. And sort of, I don't remember whether that's vertical or horizontal integration from my academic days, but organizations are becoming both payers and providers. And that's one way to sort of own the premium dollar. And certainly if you are a payer primarily and you have providers that are part of your organization, you want your providers to provide care at lower cost. So I add that to the mix before I get to the burnout. We've done some work here at MHA doing some surveying of our members and the physicians and clinicians that work for us. We've actually done it twice. So we have a baseline and a next year. And we've done quite a bit of resiliency training for our members. So we're trying to address it. But the root causes, the ones you mentioned, are still going to be there. But I think the way to address that is maybe more resilience. I know that sounds like get used to it. (laughs) But I think it's a new way that's coming and we, we have to have tools to deal with it. So that leads me then to where's MHA going with your members now in this context of the value based world? What do you foresee in the near future? Well, that's a good question, too. I would say, first and foremost, we serve our members. So they tell us what to work on. And sometimes we try to help them go forward. But as much as we can, we'd love to be able to provide tools that will be helpful in the value-based world. We've been a little bit stymied with having hospital-only data. And we'd love to get our hands on all setting data that would be helpful on those retrospective predictive analytics and population health types of activities. And if it's not us collecting the data, at least we'd like to be able to partner with others that do have the data. So we know population health can't be done with hospital-only data. So really, my goal has been for the last few years is how can we get the types of tools and information into the hands of the people that need it in order to move into this world. So that's my own personal view of things. The members are going to tell us where we spend our resources on those types of things. But I'd be remiss if I didn't say that mental and behavioral health has been a huge part of what we've been asked to work on. The system is a little bit broken and we need to figure out a way to care for a growing problem of not having enough services or enough people that know how to care for mentally ill folks and in in the right settings. It's really a growing challenge, not just here in Minnesota, I don't think. I think we hear this from our colleagues as well. Beside the value-based world, I think that we've got this mental behavioral health is really a growing problem that we need to address. 
That's interesting. It just gives me an idea for future podcasts. I remember hearing a talk from a researcher at University of California, Irvine, who has done telepsychiatry work that took a typical hour-long session and was able to boil it down to 15 minutes that were highly satisfactory to both the clinician and the patient. So we need to think of new and innovative ways to expand the capacity there and yeah. uh, so that we can address these needs. That's a really good point. And so telemedicine is probably another podcast that we could do. But in a state like Minnesota, which we have 142 hospitals, 78 are critical access hospitals, which are 25 beds or less. They are in remote rural areas and they don't have the types of specialists or the mental health providers. So telemedicine, telepsychiatry, and other sorts of telemedicine is really growing in importance, and they don't always get paid for. And so you touched on the policy angle of this. It really is very important for rural health care. Well, Mark Sonneborn, thank you so much for your time today. Hey, I had a great time being here. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www. 3mhisinsideangle.com.